Hello, Success Fam. Welcome to this episode of Conversations with the C-Suite. The topic of today's podcast will be Revenue Office. And as my guest, I have Aaron Thompson, who's the CEO and founder of Red Slacks, and who's also served as the CRO of Success Hacker, and brings in a wealth of experience overlapping between customer success and revenue. And he is one of the pioneers that introduced a stellar concept of revenue acquisition cost versus customer acquisition cost, and a lot of other thought processes around how to make customer success into a meaningful revenue office and how it can help to attract more revenue for a company. Let's hear more from Aaron in this very insightful and fun-filled podcast. Hey, Aaron. So let me start with the first question, right? I mean, there's a lot to ask because uh, customer success and revenue are getting closer and closer and getting tied at the hip. So my first question to you is, I mean, you're one of those leaders that have a very good intersection with both customer success and the revenue office. You've held offices in both. Now, in today's part, podcast, we will explore the side of you that focuses on revenue, tying it back into customer success. Now, first question, tell me, what are the responsibilities of a revenue office? What are they expected to do? What are they expected to deliver? Absolutely. Well, first off, thanks so much for the opportunity to be on the podcast with you. Uh, always love to, to talk to folks uh, about customer success and specifically revenue, being a revenue officer myself uh, and selling into the customer success industry like we do at Success Coaching. Uh, so I, I, to your point, I kind of walk that intersection. And especially in today's day and age where net revenue retention is becoming so critical as the economy slows, new customer acquisition gets more and more difficult, it just becomes that much more paramount for organizations to keep the revenue that they've got and then hopefully be able to grow that. And that's really the, um, you know, the, the, the function of a revenue organization or a chief revenue officer is to really look at the overall revenue landscape. So we've got different revenue streams. I'll talk later when I get in, you know, when we get into the kind of concept of revenue acquisition cost versus customer acquisition cost. But really the idea is we're looking at all things revenue, whether it be net new customers or retaining customers or growing our current customers, uh, even generating advocates out of those through some customer marketing and other types of activities. All of that goes under what the revenue office or in my case, chief revenue officer is ultimately responsible for um, reporting out on that, forecasting on that, and really being predictive in nature as much as possible with uh, not only where is it going to come from, but how much are we going to have and what's that going to look like? And you know, what, what does that do for our top line and then ultimately bottom line of the business? And also the strategies, I presume, right? The strategies should drive um, the overall targets and new revenues, existing revenues, et cetera. So I think it is a very strategic come operations come vision i mean visionary office yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the more strategic or, or i should say the more kind of pragmatic you can be about it the better you know the the more systematic we can make revenue generation and revenue growth uh that's where revenue ops comes into play and maybe we'll touch on that a little bit as well but um that's what we're always looking to do is can i take what's in, a, in an up economy, you don't have to worry about as much, you know, you're getting all these inbound leads and things are busy and you're just trying, you can almost just become like a order fulfillment yeah. type of motion because there's just so much coming in. But in a down economy, now it's really uh, much more about executing on that strategy, having a sound revenue strategy, 
uh, and then really uh, tactically executing against that to, again, hopefully be able to continue your growth even when the uh, the economy slows. Yeah. So what are the key metrics that a revenue office is usually measured against, right? I, You know, you did tell me at the start that everything that rolls up as a revenue metric is SERO's responsibilities. But if let us say that a CRO office needs to be called as successful, like can you list out the top three metrics that really matter to the C-suite or the market? And number two, the people that are responsible for delivering those metrics, what skills do they bring to the table? What, what should I be doing or what skills, experience should I have had in order to be able to take responsibility for delivering those metrics? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and kind of two questions. I'll try to address the top yes. three KPIs first and then come back to the, the people and the skill set uh, that lends to those. Um, so there's a maturation process of a revenue organization. And when you look at it from obviously net new revenue is table stakes, every business, even if you're running a little lemonade stand as a kid, right? It's all about getting those customers to buy that cup of lemonade. And that's sort of where it all begins in terms of maturation. Then you get into, if you have a repeatable revenue model uh, and you live in any kind of a subscription business model, not every business works that way, but even for transactional businesses, if I sell cups of coffee, for example, when you come back to my coffee shop, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, that's a renewal. That's all it is. It's a transactional sale. There's certainly no subscription involved with it, but by you coming back to me, it means that you're getting something that you value enough to keep coming. Because you can get a cup of coffee or tea or whatever anywhere you want. The reason you come to me is maybe because I know your order or we're on your bus line and easy to you know get in and out of or big parking lot, whatever the case may be. And so all of that goes into this repeatable revenue. And you can look at almost any business that way, whether it's a subscription business where you truly have that more traditional repeatable revenue model or you look at a transactional business and you see those as many renewals when that customer continues to come back, that's kind of stage two. So it's not, it no longer is it about, you know, getting a net new customer to come in your store and buy something. It's now having them come back and buy something. And then from there, you get into other types of revenue like upsells. Uh, if I can, you know, work with you to pay more for the same thing or, purchase something that is, you know, one step up that costs a little bit more. That's additional revenue for us. Uh, really common in e-commerce and retail when you're looking at cart values and average uh, deal sizes and just constantly trying to, you know, people who bought this, bought that, people who viewed this, bought that. All of those recommendations go into additional revenue generation uh, as well as expansions and cross-sells. So you've got your upsells where you're buying something that's more expensive or spending more for the same thing, either way. Then you've got cross-sells. People who bought this shirt bought those pants. And maybe we can drive up the additional revenue by way of the cross-sell. And then last but not least, the, the, the fifth kind of area to focus on is net new revenue by way of your customer advocates. And that's really what the most mature revenue models look at. The most mature customer success leaders need to be tracking are this concept of a customer success qualified lead. And I can go through kind of which types of revenue apply to CSQLs, but generally speaking, if you are advocating for me and you're out there talking positively about me in the market and industry, you are generating net, lead, net new leads to me, whoever you're talking to, 
as a referral basis and you are my advocate. And if you're going to advocate for me, it's pretty um, safe to say that you are getting what you wanted out of your relationship with us. You wouldn't advocate for me if you weren't achieving your definition of success, whatever the outcomes and experience are. And so that's like the most mature way to look at revenue is across all of those. But if I got to focus on one, I want to focus on that advocacy, customer referral revenue, because I know everything else is doing well if you're willing to do that for me. Yeah. And I've always written in all my blog posts and, you know, ever since I got into customer success that sales is shifting towards much of your new revenue coming because of and due to your existing customers, be it, uh, you know, they buying more, they referring more, they talking about you more. That's the most credible form of sales. And it's not through a sales guy going and telling, I have these features, blah, blah. I think that's over and you're exactly. spot on when you say that. Now let's go into the skill sets of the people, right? Now it's a huge sure. task, right? It, all, it, it comes down to many things, your product quality, your customer experience, your marketing, everything rolls up into this. So what about the skill sets that, you know, one should bring, you know, this podcast is listened by so many aspiring women, especially that want to mm. get into money and finance and revenue offices. So what skills they should bring in? Well, it's going to depend on the organization and what those goals are of that revenue operation and revenue organization. Um, if we are, let's just talk, let's leave net new out because that's a sales function and marketing function. And, you know, the customer success doesn't have as much or sometimes anything to do with that absence of the referrals and the advocates that we, we can generate that way. But a true net new that we had to market to and take them through the whole funnel, that's the most expensive revenue. And we don't have a whole lot in, in, of involvement with that. Where we get involved is from, okay, sign deal, net new customer into retention, rev, you know, renewal revenue, expansion revenue, and then that advocacy. So as a leader, the skill set that I'm going to look for for someone on my revenue team or my customer success team is going to be dependent on where my strengths and weaknesses lie in the business. Mm. So if we're having a hard time retaining customers and our net revenue retention isn't where we need it to be, typically 90 plus percentage year over year, then I'm going to be looking for people who can help me solve that problem before I'm worried about finding people who can maybe identify opportunities for account growth and expansion, the cross sells and the upsells and the, you know, the additional revenue generating motions. If we've got a hole in our retention bucket, we got to fill that first and foremost. Yeah. If that's dialed in and we've got a good NRR, now I'm going to look at people with more of a, maybe an account. So that's more of a support background and somebody who's worked with customers and can build those longstanding relationships, be their trusted advisor and really ensure that they are, the customer is achieving their definition of success. So that's, that's one skill set. Once we've got that fixed, or if that's never been a problem, then let's look at those expansion opportunities, cross-sell, upsell. How do I identify opportunities for growth? What kind of like consultative conversations can I have to identify additional pains that you might have that we might have a solution for? And how can I navigate that process with you to explore that as an opportunity? both for you to solve a problem and for us to generate more revenue and deepen our relationship with you. And so that skill set's going to be one that lends itself to a historical account manager function yeah. or that some something like that. 
Um, and then in terms of advocacy and generating referral revenue, that I'm looking for someone who's been in marketing, uh, whether it's customer marketing in the post-sale side, or even someone with marketing experience at the top of the funnel, because I want them to take that skill set that they do, have done at the top, apply it to our current customer base, and start making advocates out of them, create platforms for them to be thought leaders, and community and conferences, and whatever ways we can think of to put them in front of people, make them look good. And then if we're doing it right, they then would make us look good, hopefully as well. Wow. <laughs> Great. Well, different skill sets, depending on the problem. Depending we need on to the find... problem you're in to solve in this space. And there are so many areas to address, isn't it? It's such a fascinating space where, you know, you could be responsible, like you rightly said, for existing renewals or new lead generations. I mean, wow. So one of your recent LinkedIn posts, which also went viral and, you know, the way you told the concept between customer acquisition cost and the revenue acquisition cost, where, I mean, I just don't want to spill the beans for the audience. Why don't you, <laughs> why yeah. don't you talk about it and, you know, how it came, how the idea came about, what prompted you to write that and, 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 you know, the entire process behind that thought process. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. And, um, you know, we've, we've heard for years about customer acquisition cost, especially relative to, again, the subscription pricing model. And when we have a repeatable revenue model, the customer acquisition cost or CAC, that ratio to average lifetime value or CLTV, yes. typically you need to have a three to one CLTV. So your lifetime value has to be three times as much as your customer acquisition cost. And that's because of operations. We, you know, one to one isn't, you're just breaking even at that point. And two to one, maybe you're profitable, maybe you're not. But three to one, you definitely are where I've now, on average, I'm making three times what it costs me to acquire a customer. But that's not good enough in my mind. And we've heard that for years. And I mean, if anybody watches Shark Tank or any of those shows, any uh, subscription business that steps on the carpet, the first question the sharks ask is what's your acquisition cost and what's your lifetime value? Because they're looking for that ratio. Yes. And that's kind of been our, our rule of thumb. Yeah. And it's great, but it's not detailed enough. And that's what has been keeping me up at night with both our business, as well as just customer success, the industry. When we just look at customer acquisition costs, we're not being granular enough in terms of the types of revenue that that customer either generates for us or provides to us. So again, you've got the different revenue streams, net new coming through the funnel, retention revenue, You've got cross-sell revenue, you've got upsell revenue, and then you've got that advocacy referral revenue, which is in itself net new, but driven by the customer bringing us net new business as opposed to us marketing and selling and going through the typical MQLs and SQLs. These are now CSQLs, customer success qualified leads. And when we look at our impact on revenue, it's much more effective when we are speaking with the C-suite uh, so oftentimes customer success leaders are constantly kind of fighting for a feet at the table still, right? Everybody understands the value of marketing and everybody understands sales and MQLs, SQL, pretty easy, been around a long time compared to us. We're always trying to kind of fight our way up to the, the revenue table and say, look, we are responsible for this dollar, this a dollar amount or volume. And how we can do that goes way beyond customer acquisition costs. It goes into the revenue acquisition cost because your net new revenue that's coming through with your net new customer 
is by far the most expensive revenue you're ever going to generate. That revenue stream costs the most yes. because you have to market to so many people to have them find out about you, to have them decide to buy it, all of the things that go into the top of a typical funnel. Then we get into retention revenue. That's the least expensive. We didn't have to market for that revenue. We didn't have to even train people oftentimes. There's virtually no overhead. You've used it for a year. You got enough value out of it that you want to use it for another year. Sign on the dotted line and away we go. There's no marketing function or even oftentimes not even a sales function. Many times it's not even a negotiation, you know? And, and so that's the second one. So that's the least expensive. So we want to track those two separately in terms of rack revenue acquisition cost, not CAC of customer acquisition cost, because we we acquired that second contract year from that current customer, that doesn't go into a CAC formulation, yes. but it, right, it's completely lost, exactly. And yet we had such a profound impact on that in customer success management that we should be able to point to at least some percentage of those dollars being related to what we do. Yeah. Then you've got upsell. If I identify an opportunity for you to pay more or buy, you know, buy something that's more fancy or whatever, and you do it, that's directly related to us. And that's a middle of the tier revenue acquisition cost. Typically, we have some marketing function that needs to happen. You had to learn about it somehow. And then we have some kind of negotiation. And so there's some sales function. And so it's a little more on the acquisition cost, but it's still much less than the net new revenue when we originally signed that customer. Same thing with cross-sell, uh, with upsell and cross-sell, those work the same way. And then in terms of net new revenue, the least expensive way that we can generate a net new logo, net new dollar is by way of the advocacy and the referral plays from our current customer set. That acquisition cost is about one thirteenth the price of a typical MQL and SQL. So driving them into the, the funnel by way of our customer so it's much less expensive dollar, yet it's a net new logo. So there's still overhead. There's going to be training involved. There's, you know, sales is going to be involved, but we didn't have to market to them like we do at the top of the funnel. And so it's less expensive and it's net new revenue. And so those different revenue streams from net new to retention, to upsell, to cross sell, to advocacy or referral revenue, those five revenue streams all in themselves have different acquisition costs. And that's what I tried to break down in that article and try to, I've been trying to press the customer success industry and leaders out there uh, throughout 20, 2022 and now into 23, get more granular with how you identify your impact on revenue. revenue. And the more specific we can get, the better, more accurate picture we can paint and the bigger seat we're going to have at the table. So one question, right? It's a good, uh, a rack must be, must not be very expensive. Is that right? A rack shouldn't be too high. Yeah. There well, it's going to depend on the type of revenue. You're, you know, you're, it's all going to be relative to how many people you have to market to yeah. for them to find out about you, for some of them to become a customer, et cetera. Um, and so that rack is always going to be the most expensive you have. How that relates to your uh, customer lifetime value and, you know, what is a profitable rack versus an unprofitable rack. It's going to all be dependent on the business, the price points, you know, how, what your marketing function looks like and all, what the overhead is, is involved with, uh, even onboarding and into implementation and uh, delivery and operations. 
If it's a simple product, well, now I've got less overhead to acquire and bring on new customers than you know a CRM or something that's got a million integrations and and a much longer uh, up or uh, you know go to market or you know go live plan. So it's all going to be dependent on the product and the market, uh, but it's all about understanding the ratios and, uh, and and what types of revenue are the most profitable for our business. And spoiler alert: customer success affects four out of those five, and three out of those four are considered customer success qualified leads, meaning we're generating more revenue, new revenue at a lower acquisition cost than uh, the typical MQLs and SQLs. So question, right? So in your stint as a CRO in Success Hacker, I mean, did you already have this implemented going on? Um, so I'm just trying to find out, like, you know, this is this is a great idea, right? more and more so because I mean, I gen, I see a fundamental transition of customer success from being some kind of a coordination or a customer experience office to a more serious responsibility as driving revenue, right? I mean, there's a there's a significant overlap and the gap is closing, if I may say, right? So I just wanted to ask you, like in your stint as the CRO, did you, did you introduce this or what new initiatives you have tried uh, you know, to bring the two offices closer together. I mean, if you could walk us through your experience as a CRO. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, where I really started uh, to learn the impact of post-sale customer relationship management. Uh, so that could be support, professional services, whatever, but it's a current customer. And the impact it can have on revenue was when I was still in support and I was managing a team of technical account managers and we had different SKUs for different levels of support, silver, gold, platinum, right? Pretty typical stuff. Uh, but with that, we were able to sell premium support offerings back into our customers, which was good for them because now they had a dedicated technical account manager and a CSM and some uh, out of the box engineering hours and better initial response times and service level agreements, right? Higher level of support. So it's better for them. And it was better for us because it allowed us to have a more white glove, high touch environment, thus resulting in higher retention rates and, and additional uh, expansion opportunities being found. And so I learned this and it was sort of this big aha moment years and years ago before I was ever the head of customer success. But that was where the light bulb kind of went on on. I can take something that is historically been seen as an overhead expense to the business like support, for example, and I can make it a profitable revenue generating business unit. And that was a huge shift in how it worked, right? All of a sudden we're not justifying our existence, you know, by how many support tickets we can fix. We're actually able to generate revenue from professional services and then additional software usage, adoption, engagement, et cetera. Um, and so then from there I went and I got my first head of customer success job and learned very quickly, I need to start tracking what our customer acquisition cost is and started really understanding what does our marketing take? How do we find our people? What's our sales process like? What is our entire overhead to bring on a net new customer so that I can make sure we keep them long enough to at least be profitable somewhat on that customer. Uh, and so that kind of was the next step in revenue operations, revenue identification, um, revenue officer work that I did. Um, and then from there I became a consultant and was working 
uh, independently. And I tell you one thing, the fastest way to learn marketing and sales and revenue operations and customer success and just about anything else is to found your own company and go be an <laughs> entrepreneur. That's good. You're going to, you're going to learn it all, you know, more, more than you want to know. In fact, uh, like all the way down to, you know, website development and things like that. Um, and so through that process, I really started uncovering a lot of companies don't look at it like this. They just don't look at it that way. Yeah. And so uh, five years ago or so when I came in uh, to, to partner with the uh, success coaching and, and came in as the chief revenue officer, I immediately wanted to start looking, taking totally. our business and looking at it through that lens. Wow. That, that is really, really great. And uh, so, uh, so generally, right, how do you enable CSMs and CS, CS to be, um, to be, to you know deliver revenue like you know i i thought you read my mind and answer ahead of time like where you said you know support from an existential function to a function that is responsible for um, existing customers such as this do you think it makes sense for example i'm just throwing an example right a support instead of just fixing a ticket is it nice of them to follow up saying that these are some proactive ways in which you could solve this problem from happening this is our recommendation for you. Then that changes the, the very presentation of a support function to a consulting function, if you will. They are not just solving problems reactively. They are going yeah. one step ahead and presenting as consulting function, such as this. If you were a CEO, or let's say you're a CRO, and the CS reports into you, what will you do? How will you enable them in what all possible ways so that they can really see this transformation through to your function that is profitable for the company? Yeah, that's a good, absolutely. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good point too, because support is typically transactional communication. Yes. Problem, answer, you know, bug, fix, fire, put it out, right? Uh, and we have a queue. So you've got just tons of stuff constantly weighing on you. You're always trying to beat down the queue and try to get out ahead of it and close more tickets today than were opened. That's kind of the goal. Um, and that's a very reactive way to work with your customers. Yes. Uh, in fact, that is the nature of customer support. It's reactive and tactical. Customer success is proactive and strategic. To your point of what you're, you're thinking there is, here's some proactive ways to do it. And so we have to be really clear on what we're doing. And I might wear those two hats at various times of my day. Certain times I'm reacting to something coming in. That's not a success function. That's a support function. And then vice versa. When I'm proactively, strategically working with someone to solve a business challenge or whatever, uh, get an ROI, whatever the case may be, then that's a customer success function. Um, and so just understanding the two, I think, is the first step. But then for people like myself who come from a support background, it isn't an e a natural transition to speak and communicate that way. And so we actually teach a, a course in our, our level one program uh, called taking a consultative approach. And that's all about how you communicate with your customers. And there are three main areas of it. Uh, Open-ended questions. So questions that can't be answered with a yes or no answer. Uh, active listening. So I'm listening to you and I'm translating back what you're saying and I'm repeating it in my own words and having you confirm that yes, that's what you intended or no. And so it alleviates a lot of misunderstanding. And then lastly is storytelling. 
And if we can do those three things effectively, ask plenty of open-ended questions to get to that second and third level, and then perform active listening so we fully understand what they're looking to do. And then if I can tell effective stories about other customers like you, had a similar problem, et cetera, I can start to open up opportunities for growth, whether that be a cross-sell, upsell, whatever the case may be, just in my conversations with you, because I'm there to be your trusted advisor and you will share things with me as a CSM that you wouldn't share with your account exec or your account manager, someone who I know is in the sales function. Uh, if, if you're helping me achieve my definition of success and that's your role as my CSM, I'm gonna share pains and gains and things that, I, that, that you can help me with and identifying those and understanding those. Perfect story about that. Uh, when I was at Jive Software years ago, T-Mobile was my client and T-Mobile had um, about 20,000 people on the product, 21 hours a day, seven days a week. I won't go into the details as to why, but that created a ton of data. And we had a data extract service where you could pull out all the usage data, put it in a BI tool and you can report on it and you know visualize it, et cetera. That service failed because there was just so much activity. It, the, they were like 10 times more usage than any other customer. So it just wasn't adequate in terms of CPU and infrastructure to be able, it would time out. And so they come to me and say, the data extract service is broken. I immediately put my support hat on. I go downstairs, I'm talking to the infrastructure team and we're working and we're fixing it. And I triumphantly come back about a week later after this big fire drill. Oh, what report, by the way, were you looking to build? Long story short, the data extract service was huge and all they needed was one one hundredth of the data to actually get the report that they wanted. We could have written a script in five minutes to pull that data out, gotten them what they needed, and then been much more controlled with how we went to solve the actual problem. But because I wasn't consultative, I just went straight into I'm going to fix it instead of understanding what are you trying to do? What's the goal? What, what report are you looking to build? Um, I, you know, I, I took what could have been a very controlled manner and made it a big fire drill and, you know, it was a big all hands on deck kind of thing. Uh, that's an example of where I was not consultative and where had I been, I would have understood their problem, what they were looking to do, and I could have recommended a better set of solutions to solve it. Okay. So I think, I mean, just a summary or a takeaway for me is that, um, I mean, what we are conscious, at least in my organization, what I'm currently doing is that some overlap of what you call as a traditional account management role, we are asking the CSMs to take up, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have a good fodder coming in in terms of their current problems and challenges. Just don't wait for an account management guy to come and, you know, structure a proposal. Just go for it, right? Just go from your technical knowledge or subject matter expertise, go find solutions and get an opportunity to go present it, right? So some overlap we are creating with the account management function itself, you know, some mm -hmm. kind of a consulting uh, role. So that that brings me to my um, next, uh, next question on this, right? Um, so what I was going to ask you is that, do you get involved in structuring a deal? Does the revenue office play a role in, in deal structuring? For example, let's say that you want to keep your revenue acquisition costless right? You have a target to meet. Then do you get involved in structuring a deal such that you want to play out, um, uh, you know, you want to play out the renewals in a certain way. Like, for example, you want to negotiate for a three-year renewal and you're negotiating other terms in the contract. With this end goal in mind, 
right? Keep my rag mm -hmm. low. So do you get, does revenue office get involved in a deal structure and strategies? Uh, absolutely. At our organization, it does. Um, and it's interesting you brought up the, the difference between account management and customer success management, um, because that's an, I, I like to kind of draw the line this way between those two. This is how I keep them straight. Um, and again, it could be one person operating in both capacities, depending on the organization or, you know, hundreds of people on teams, whatever. Uh, but the job function, the allegiance is what it really comes down to. So as a customer success manager, my allegiance is with you and making you successful, whatever that is in terms of desired outcome plus desired experience. My job, my allegiance is to make sure you get the outcome that you want yeah. and you get it by way that, of the experience that you want. Yeah. Um, and we assume that if we do that, you're gonna stay and expand and advocate and do all these other things. An account management function, the allegiance is with growing the account. I've got a number to hit in terms of account growth, typically speaking, I've got a quota. And when I hit that number, I get a bonus. And when I don't, I might not have a job. And so my allegiance is with the account and managing that account, growing that account versus a customer success manager's allegiance is with the customer, the human. And so I don't have the ability as a CSM to go above you and around you, et cetera. My job is to make you successful. But as an AM, I do. I can oftentimes go above you, around you, through you. If you're not helping me grow that account by way of additional introductions or however our account management function works, then I've got some carte blanche to be able to kind of do what I need to do in order to hit my number. And that's not a bad function. It's just a different approach to account growth. It's much more historical. It's been around a lot longer than customer success management and it's yeah. been very effective. That's why there's AMs, right? Yeah. Um, and so that difference I think is important to, to keep in mind and all of that rolls up into the revenue office. And so absolutely, yes, but how we do it's gonna be very different depending on the player involved is this the account exec or the account manager or the customer success manager who's either identified the opportunity uh, and then maybe is even negotiating the deal? It, that's a very different type of negotiation. If I'm your trusted advisor and I'm negotiating pricing with you, that's different than a, an account executive who is, it's a much more transactional relationship. As a CSM, I'm there forever, right? Ideally, I'm in your life in perpetuity. I mean, just you're getting what you need and we're getting what we need and everybody's happy. It's all great. Versus an AM or an AE, it's a much more transactional relationship. You're looking to buy this. I'm going to help you buy that. We're going to figure out what the terms look like and we're going to sign on the dotted line. And then I might not be as involved in your life until you're ready to buy another thing. And so just the nature of the relationships are all very different. So that then means how we approach these revenue generating functions has to be very different as well, depending on our role in the customer's life, CSM, AM, or, or AE, but they all definitely roll up to the, the CRO. Okay. Okay. Now let's talk about revenue ops, a favorite topic under the <laughs> CRO office, right? So let's just decode it a little bit for us. What is the role of RevOps? Is it accurate revenue projections, collections and payments? or uh, you know or you know the revenue forecasting presenting it to the c-suite just i mean summarize what is revops what what does the term mean yeah well the, my, my answer would be to, to all of those 
Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> all I'm sorry. of that. If I, if I, you know. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's the operations of the revenue function within the business. And so we're going to be looking at customer acquisition costs, the customer lifetime value, making sure that we're profitable, understanding really how long we need to keep customers based on the type of revenue. And then you've got your revenue acquisition costs where we're getting another step down. You've got your forecasting, you've got uh, any kind of um, uh, customer revenue generating function like customer marketing and generating advocates out of them. Uh, creating community could even be considered part of RevOps because now we're looking at support deflection and hopefully ticket deflection because they can do some self-service stuff. That's related to revenue because it provides us less overhead necessary to fix that problem or have the customer get what they need. You can almost put everything under a RevOps umbrella in one way or another. It's just a matter of if we're actually directly related or I should say directly responsible for that one particular thing. But to your, to your examples, my answer is yes. All of those things, yeah, exactly. Okay, my final question, right? The overlap between revenue, finance, and sales. Does it exist? Three different functions tied together, one reporting to another. How would you structure, uh, you know, this is a heavily overlapping thing, right? I can understand about customer success, but revenue, there is a sales function, there is a finance, right? Yeah. How do you structure an org structure around them? And, and you know, how, how are these overlaps ironed out? That's a very good, a very good point that, you know, finance is obviously revenue related as well. And how does that uh, play with revenue operations, revenue offices? Um, I actually think of them as differently. I think of a CFO and a CRO as being, the CFO is an accountant. They are, you know, really good with the data and the numbers, and they are gonna be the ones who are accounting for expenditures, and a lot of outgoing revenue, purchase orders, et cetera, as well as realizing all of the incoming revenue and making sure that we're operating in a sound financial way. Versus a CRO is really looking almost exclusively at how can we generate more incoming revenue. I'm not as focused on what our expenditures are. Uh, I, I look to the CFO or the COO to you know make sure that we're spending uh, efficiently and responsibly, et cetera. But my job is to generate net new revenue at the lowest possible revenue acquisition cost so that we're as profitable on each of those dollars as, as we can be, and then report that back, right? To the leadership, the C-suite, the board, whatever, on how we're doing from a revenue generation versus financial responsibility. I think that's how I would think of it, CRO to CFO. Wow, that's great. So CFO is responsible for allocating budgets, making the company profitable, meeting margins, etc. Whereas the CRO is focused on how do I bring more revenue, right, into this company at a cost target that we have established, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay, so this is again, so and I really mean this, this is my last question. The overlap between CRO and marketing. Because usually, traditionally, marketing has held the responsibility for bringing top of the lead funnel and then the revenue coming out of it with sales converting it. But right now, I read a very interesting book. I forgot the title of the book that says the marketing is now actually moving into or overlapping with the revenue function, right? I mean, people are transforming. So do you see that? Because I just cannot relate because marketing is more of a 
demand gen, you know, mm -hmm. kind of a, using a language and branding, etc. Whereas revenue is not that. Revenue mm -hmm. is most delivery driven. So I just can't see why they overlap. But your thoughts? Yeah, well, I always just think of marketing as everything, to, you know, outbound, inbound, pay-per-click, SEO, blog posts, content, yes. billboards, funny looking logos that have donkeys and plungers on, you know, whatever you do so people know you exist. That's the first and foremost for marketing. Then we move into, so that's like pre-sale top of funnel to your point. And I don't see a lot of overlap into the CRO world there, except for understanding MQLs are expensive. SQLs are expensive. And so we want to try to generate as many CSQLs as possible because it's more profitable. However, on the bottom of the funnel, when we talk about generating advocates out of our customers to create referral-based revenue, that's where marketing can really get involved with the CRO and customer success in general, because now we're looking at customer marketing. So we're not doing brand awareness. They already know us. They're a customer but they don't necessarily know everything we have and all the pains that we can help them solve and ways that we can help them be, if they so desire, uh, be seen as a thought leader, either in our community or you know, an industry community, conferences, whatever the case may be to help them look good, be successful, and I, ideally make their life better because we're in it. That's really the goal here with customer success and should be the goal with CRO as well. We should be here to make people's lives better. Customer marketing helps do that. And so that's where I see it overlapping is when we're looking at what are we doing to market either into our current customer base or create places and opportunities for them to do whatever they want to do in terms of career development, like being seen as a thought leader, et cetera. So that's where I see it overlapping. But to your point, on the top of the funnel marketing, I totally agree. Like, I don't see that necessarily. That's that's an almost an overhead expense. That's a cost of doing business. Typically speaking, a company spends 40% of their available capital up there in the MQL, SQL world. So it's very expensive. And then our job in the CRO world is to try to hone that down. Where we can help them at the top of the funnel is to refine the ideal customer profile, help them understand what a good fit, stretch fit, bad fit customer looks like over time, because they built an ICP, they went to market, they think it's pretty accurate, but when we live in the bottom of the funnel in delivery operations, customer success, what have you, we learn who the good fit, stretch fit, bad fit customers are. And it's our job to surface that back up so that they can be more effective with who they market to and how they market to them. Wow. Phenomenal. I mean, I really like this response. <laughs> you know, Thank the you. way you relate the functions into real metrics, right? It's just amazing. Okay. So we are done with the topic of revenue. Now, I mean, we want to know a little on about your personal side, not not sure. a very elaborate answers, just quick rapid fire answers. So we get a sense of what you're about as a person. Ready to Well, fire? that is not my strength. That is short answers is not where I do well. I'm gonna warn you right now. <laughs> but we'll try. We'll try. <laughs> okay, ready? Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. What is the one thing you cannot live without? Let's say we are taking you to the moon and we are never letting you come back. What is the one thing that you will take with you you cannot live without? You know, that's a good a, a good question. I was, I was kind of trying to think through that. And honestly, there's really nothing I, no, no thing I can't live without. There's people I couldn't live without. My family, first and foremost, is obviously the most important yeah. thing in my life. So that would be my answer. Now, if I had to put 
a tangible thing together. I, I, I guess it would probably be my passport because <laughs> I just love to travel and I love to see the world. And so obviously a passport alone doesn't do that. I also would need an airplane and things like that too. Uh, but I guess if I had to pick one thing, it would be my passport, but really fully um, my, my family is really the, the thing that matters the most. Okay. A, a favorite book or a movie that you keep going back to and you wouldn't mind watching every year, every month or, you know, reading every year, every month kind of a thing. Absolutely. Uh, there's so many, you know, it's a very difficult uh, question to answer. Um, for the majority of my life, though, I've been a very big basketball fan. Uh, we just came out of March Madness, which is the college basketball tournament. Uh, that was last, obviously, last month in March. And that's one of my favorite times of the year. And the reason I love it so much is because it's about underdogs. Yeah. And they, you know, they maybe they can't beat the big school multiple times in a row, but they could beat them one time. And that's all they have to do in this in this conference or in this tournament. There's a movie called Hoosiers. Uh, Gene Hackman uh, starred in it. And it was about a high school basketball team in the state of Indiana tiny little school who overcame amazing odds to actually win the state championship. This is back in the 1950s, I think. That's one that'll make me cry and get goosebumps and laugh every time I watch it. And I could definitely watch Hoosers, Hoosers every, every week for the rest of my life. And I love it that much. Okay. So you're not in a room and people that are well known to you are talking about you. What is your brand value? What do you think they'll talk about you even when you're not in the room? <laughs> that's such a, a loaded question I'm not in the room I don't know uh, so I would I, I would say I'll, I'll put it this way I'm I'm old enough and I think self-aware enough now to realize depending on what people you're talking about being in that room there's going to be very different stories about me right there's there's stories where I'm the hero and there's stories where I'm the villain everybody somewhere in between and you know i firmly believe that's where the truth lies that being said if it's people who you know are uh think of me positively i would say that they would probably hopefully but I, what i would like for them to to feel is that i was there to help others i have tried to spend as much time as i can paying it forward uh especially in customer success when i got into this industry i had nothing to offer and was was beg borrowing and stealing to try to figure this thing out and once I understood it and was able to, to really be successful in this industry, I've had other people come and ask me for help. And I always, always, always try to assist as much as I can. So that would be what I would hope that they would be saying is he was there to, to help others and, and uh, really paid, paid, the, paid his dues forward back, back into the, the industry. So what did Aaron in his 20s wanted to do? Like if you look back at your younger self, what is that one advice you would you would give? Yeah, uh, I was really surprised. So I went to a bunch of different universities. I had a bunch of different majors. I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. All I knew was I loved playing basketball. And so I was playing college basketball and kind of transferred around, really focused on that. Um, and somehow, some way that worked out just fine for me. I ended up with a, a degree in four years. I graduated in four years through none of my own you know, strategy uh, or, or forethought just out of complete dumb luck. Uh, and I think, so back when I was in my 20s, literally what I wanted to do was play professional basketball. I just wanted to get a check one time. I didn't care if it was $5, but I wanted someone to pay me one time to play basketball. That would have been the dream. Uh, once I learned very quickly that that wasn't going to happen uh, in my early 20s, 
I thought I'm going to get into marketing and living here in Portland, Oregon, where Nike and Adidas and Under Armour shoes, they're all here. I thought I'll go get a marketing job at Nike. Long story short, they didn't want me to be in marketing. I had no marketing experience. I didn't even take a marketing class in college. I was a sociology major. So I was astounded that I couldn't get these jobs. Uh, and so looking back, I think what I would advise myself is just go do what you're going to do because taking those customer service phone calls when I was 21 years old at a health insurance company ended up being such a applicable experience for when I found customer success. And that's what I loved about this industry when I found it was, holy cow, every job I've ever had applies to this. I've always been in support or service or something, and they all apply one way or another. And so I think what I would tell myself is just have faith. You're going to get there. It doesn't exist yet, this world that you're going to find. But when you do find it, it's all going to make sense. And uh, you're going to be very grateful for every job you've had all the way back to the beginning of your career. So that would that, that would be what I would tell myself. Sure. Yeah, of course. So my my next question, right? So if a bunch of college grads, all with very similar academic backgrounds, no difference at all, come to you. And you have to pick one based on soft skill. What would get a seat in your in your table? Sure, yeah. Anytime um, I'm advising someone to hire, I mean, it's going to depend on the job, right? And, and the role that they're applying for. But let's say they're applying to be a customer success manager because we're, we're talking CSM secrets here. And so I'm going to be hiring a CSM. What I want is to find a candidate who has been my customer. I can teach them how to do onboarding and success planning and technical and integrations, configuration. I can teach them all of that. But what I can't teach them is the pains and those pain points as a customer that we solve with our product. I want them to have lived that. So that's what I advise people when they're looking to break into customer success. Find companies that sell to where you've been before in your career, and you'll be very well positioned to get a CSM job because you've walked in the shoes of that customer. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What, what is that one thing? I mean, if at all, there is one such thing you would never do again. <laughs> oh, man. There's a, probably a million of them. That I, would, I don't know. Uh, what would I not do again? That's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, We've all made mistakes, I'm sure. Um, well, early in my career, uh, I was a trainer. I was teaching software and I had an amazing set of leadership. My boss and his boss, I loved them both dearly. Uh, they even flew across the country to come attend my, my wedding and, and we had this amazing relationship. And I wanted to transition into a consultant role from a trainer. Um, and there was a little pay lift there. It was a bit more experienced role. After training for a few years, I thought I was a good candidate for it. And so I worked with the hiring manager. It's, it was within the same organization, same company, um, different, different teams though. I worked with the hiring manager to, to position myself for this role. I applied for this role. And then I informed my leadership that I was doing this. And I really, I burned a couple of bridges there. Uh, that I, if I could do it over again, I would have been transparent with them. They would have understood that I wasn't going to be here training software for the rest of my life. And they would have helped me position myself. And I would, I would have maintained those relationships in a more positive manner. So uh, professionally speaking, there's been a million personal ones, but professionally speaking, that's when I can point back to it and say, if I could do it over again, 
I would have been transparent with my with my management, uh, especially because it was within the, within the same company, and we're working together. Once I made the move, anyway, I'm still working with them and their team, and uh, just added a couple of bumps along the way that I wish I I wouldn't have necessarily had. Do you have a mentor? or an inspirational leader that you look up to, even if you're not interacting on a day-to-day -day basis, someone that inspires you to be who you are. Yeah, uh, you know, the only Favorite true, singer, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, the only true mentor that I would say that I've had uh, is my father. Uh, he's obviously been a mentor personally my whole life, but even professionally, when I was early in my entrepreneurial days, I had a standing one-on-one -on -one with him on Zoom where I'm walking through what we're doing in the business and talking through the numbers. He was a, a great businessman himself and had an amazing career. Um, and so I respect him and his, uh, you know, his experience and, and what he's done uh, just in business in general as a CEO and, and a sales leader. Uh, so I would say my, my dad, first and foremost, is my mentor, both professionally as well as personally. He's the person I call when I'm trying to figure out how to address a tough thing professionally. And he's been the person that I've called when my whole life blew up and I needed to sleep on his couch for a few months. So, you know, just as a good father should. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So what 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 wakes you up every day? What what gives you that josh and, you know, to wake up and to be alive and, you know, go drive to work every day and, you know, so what what is your motivation? What's your fuel? Uh, people. Long story short. Yeah. I love people. I love being with people. I The the quarantine days was, was very difficult for me because um, I'm a very social person. I'm very extroverted. I don't know if you could tell, but I like to talk. And so when we were all alone, those walls started creeping in on me a little bit. So it's been amazing to, to get to be back out in the community, go to conferences, fly around the world, meet with people, have conversations like this. Even if, if it's over Zoom, I just love being with people and being around people. Um, and so that's what gets me fired up is, is when I get to either help people or work with people to solve problems. I mean, I cannot agree more. Like, you know, I, it totally resonates with me when you say people, right? I mean, when I'm not around people, when I'm not speaking to, speaking with or solving problems for people, I mean, it has a, it has a personal impact on me. You yeah. know, it's like, I just don't enjoy. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, I, I completely <laughs> agree. Yeah, the, the inbox and emails are fine and all, but I love to be able to hop yeah. on Zoom and meet people. And uh, that's the nice thing about customer success as an industry exactly. too. Exactly. It's, it's unbelievable uh, how willing people are to sure. meet a stranger, hop on Zoom for a few minutes and just to help each other out. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I've spoken to so many CS people and this comes out as a standout trait, you know, the love for people, a little bit of extroversion, service-mindedness, helping others, right? Yeah. It comes out as a standout uh, trait. Yeah. All right. On that note, I mean, I want to thank you so, so much. I mean, such a wonderful, such an insightful conversation for, you know, the, the conversations with the C-suite on the topic of revenue. So many takeaways and Anything else that you want to share with our audience before we sign off? Yeah, to really dive into the revenue acquisition, the RAC versus CAC, uh, you can find that as well as all of my written articles, podcast appearances, webinars, public speaking on redslacks.com. Uh, it's all on there, including the, the RAC article if people want to go into more detail about it. That's a great place to go. You can connect with me on all my social media channels. Uh, by way of red slacks so uh, redslacks.com 
I usually wear a pair of red slacks when I'm publicly speaking. And so that's what that's all about. I'd love to connect with any of the listeners. I hope they don't hesitate to, to reach out to me and uh, let's just keep talking about customer success and the impact we have on revenue. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Aaron. And have a good I one. Think. And thank you so much once again. Thank you.